The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning, we are going to, in some ways, be wrapping up our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount that we are bringing together in chapter 7 all that Jesus has been teaching us and that we hopefully are having the similar response of the people who heard this first sermon when the first time it was preached, and for all of us, that we have studied it and all of the saints throughout all the years. And as we introduced, as it were, last week, I don't want to call it a new tradition. Tradition carries too much baggage, but a sense of reverence for God's Word. We read in Nehemiah and Ezra was reading God's Word, the people stood before, not Ezra, but they stood before the Lord as he spoke through his word. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to stand with me today as we hear from the Lord and his word given to us in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, reading to the end of the chapter. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law of the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. We ask blessing for the reading and for the hearing of prayer. Father, we ask now that you would send your spirit and you would teach us Pick us, move us, that, that we, like those here sitting around him so many years ago, that we would be astonished by his teaching. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This is a sermon that is one that isn't to be taken lightly. There's no way to, to candy coat. There's no way to enter into this sermon and say to you, 
hey, if this is really light and fluffy and you're going to feel really good uh, necessarily about all things as you walk out of here today, th- this is a sermon uh, that this part of Christ's sermon, and therefore what I'm going to say, uh, that carries with it a, a, a massive amount of dragging. It, it is one that should make each of us respond in the way that the first hearers were responding. And the word that it said that he uses there that they were uh, astonished it is better described as they were thunderstruck. They were blown back. They were they were amazed by Jesus' teaching. It carried with it a deep and profound authority and conviction that they'd never heard before, and, and it, it pierced them. It, it was, in some ways, the very first introduction in the New Testament of that saying that the Word of God is like a two-edged sword that pierces in, in your heart. The people were pierced by what they heard. And this morning, my prayer for each of us is that we will be pierced by God's word, not by my words. And as we come to this, we recognize that Jesus being the best communicator that has ever lived in all of time and space, and preaching the best sermon that has ever been preached, like a good communicator, would never introduce something new within the conclusion. And so Jesus here is talking about duos. He's talking about twos two trees, two paths, two houses. And so you're not expecting him to say, oh, well, we've never heard of these two things uh, throughout all of the sermon. And so you would come at the conclusion and go, he must therefore be giving a summation uh, of his general teaching about the fact that there are two types of people in the world, those who are part of the kingdom and those who aren't part of the kingdom, those who receive his word and those who don't. And there's only two kinds of people. And so here in his concluding thoughts, These aren't little paragraphs and snippets that are totally unrelated to one another, but they're driving down into a point that is is saying to us, consider today which group you're in. Consider today where you fall within all of this. And we're going to, in good form then, consider two things uh, this morning. Now, to be honest, uh, they have sub-points. But at least there's two big points that we're going to consider. The first is there are only two ways in life. The second is simply this. At the end of all things, there's to be a judgment. That's what Jesus is bringing about. He's saying at the end of life, whichever way you choose, there's only two ways. Whichever way you choose, there's going to be a reckoning at the end of both of those ways. And so we should be prepared for it. So the first thing, there are two ways in life. That the entire Sermon on the Mount is about the differentiation of two types of people. Those who accept Jesus and follow his path, and those who reject him and follow their own path. There's two paths, there's two trees, there's two people, and there's two houses within this section. So the first idea there, the first picture or metaphor he gets, is there's two paths. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way, the path, is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the path of the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Here's the reality. Everybody is heading for a spiritual destination. All of us have our religious, philosophical convictions, and those religious, philosophical, worldview convictions 
are leading us somewhere. That's why we have the Apostles' Creed today. Because as a Christian, this is the, the worldview. This is the theological presuppositioning that we place and say now that everything is driven off of this. Your faith, your spiritual beliefs, your faith commitments, they're taking you somewhere. Now some of you are sitting there and rapidly are going, but Bill, I'm not religious. This is my first time in church, or I'm not a religious person. It's a bit of what Rob was saying in England to say, we're, we're not religious. But the fact of the matter is, even in the word religion, or religious, uh, that many believe that it comes from the root in a Latin uh, word that means to be bound to. So religion is to be bound to something, and all of us are bound to something, and therefore all of us are religion. Religious, everyone is making faith assumptions. I mentioned in the sermon last week, Blaise Pascal, and I would encourage you, if you're a reader, even if you're not a reader, uh, to include him in your reading. And in his work, Pensees, which are his thoughts, and he gives what many have called Pascal's wager. And he says within this uh, that all of us are making faith assumptions. For the Christian, we're saying, we believe this to be true. If you reject Christianity, if you're sitting here this morning rejecting Christianity, uh, you are making a wager. You, you are saying, I don't believe that to be true. And you're saying to the Christian, you can't prove it to be true. That there is not empirical evidence for you to prove that it's true, or you're held to the same standard. There's not empirical evidence to prove the positioning of saying that Christianity isn't true. That you can't prove it that way. So both are making faith assumptions. The question is, are you content with your faith assumption? Because Jesus is saying that as we look at the world, there are only two paths, there are only two gates, there are only two ways. One looks wide, but is actually incredibly narrow. One looks narrow, but is actually incredibly wide. He's saying the path that leads to destruction, the path of the world, or what we're being presented constantly over and over and over again, he says, is the wide path. That, that it is a path that anybody can be on. He says, and those who choose it are many. That's why we look around and we say that the bulk of the world isn't a follower of Jesus Christ. That, that the percentages show that most people would decide to go their own way. And Jesus is saying the problem with that is that though it seems wide, it ultimately leads to one place. It, it ultimately leads to destruction. It ultimately leads to a very narrow place. He contrasts it with the picture uh, of the gospel and of Christianity and Orthodox Christianity, which says that the gate is actually narrow. But once you walk through the gate, there's a wide expanse of life that is given to us. It, it may seem narrow, but Jesus said, yes, you come to the gate, which is narrow, and the narrowness of the gate is this. When he later says in John 14, 6, I am the gate, basically is what he says. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Christianity makes exclusive claims, and Christians, I want you to be encouraged by that and not shy away from that. That we make exclusive claims, that we are saying that Christianity, theologically speaking, that Christ is the only way uh, to enter into this place. If you're a non-Christian here this morning, and you're going, that's what I don't like about Christianity. 
I don't like that you say that you're the only way. Well, I want to help you for a moment. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to help you for a moment uh, understand something. Christianity may be theologically exclusive, but it is incredibly inclusive in, in this sense, that it is theologically intolerant, meaning that we say this is really the only way, but is intellectually, is morally, and is religiously tolerant. And here's what I mean by The overriding principle within Christianity is love. And so what we are saying is that for the Muslim, for the Jew, for the agnostic, for the atheist, for a person to say, I'm going to live based on these things, the Christian says, I'm still going to love you. I'm going to disagree with you theologically, but I'm going to love you, and my disagreement theologically cannot be translated into hate. Then we can say that there's moral principles that guide and direct us. Now, the world and our culture can say that we don't abide by those moral, uh, cultural uh, norms that you Christians would say in your kingdom life, and we would say, that's fine. We don't agree with you, but we love you in the midst of that. Now, we live in a culture which says disagreement is intolerance and hate. Christianity never presents it that way. It says that we're actually incredibly tolerant in this way, that we're loving to the world around us who disagree with us. How many of you are in relationship with people who disagree with you? How does the Bible tell you to respond to them? Love them. It says to love them in the midst of that. Now, what we're saying, what Christ is saying here is that Christianity, and by the way, all religions, all philosophies, are theologically intolerant. Because you see, theological tolerance is actually impossible. Because when you say to me, Bill, you can't be theologically intolerant, what are you saying? My theological vantage point is the only right one, and it excludes you. I can be theologically intolerant, but you can't be theologically intolerant. Because you see, a good Muslim would say that, that Islam and Christianity are not the same. A, a good Orthodox Jew would say that Christianity and Orthodox Judaism are not the same. That all of these things do not lead to the same place. Uh, that all paths don't lead to the same apex on the mountain. That we would all say there's a theological intolerance within these things. And why I'm telling you this is it's important for you to understand and to differentiate. So that you can say to someone, you're free to practice your religion, but here's what we believe to be the case about salvation. And that's not hate. It, it's saying to the person, all I'm trying to say is that you can't judge between religions. To say that you can't judge between religions is to actually judge between religions. It's already making a presupposition in them. And Jesus is saying there is a narrowness to this path. And that's why I would say to you this morning, Christ is the only way to salvation. That's not Bill McCutcheon saying if you have an argument and you want to get off kind of boat up, boat yeah, I'm glad to hear from you, but you're arguing with Jesus. He loved to pick that fight, by the way. Jesus was the most controversial and the most, well, he didn't mind having an argument. And he would say, I'm good. And he comes and he says this. But it's also one of the most beautiful things because he says, at least there is a path that I'm giving to you. 
It is not a lack of love to say to the, the person who has cancer that I have the one pill that is going to cure your cancer. You can try all the other pills, but they're not going to save you. And I have that one pill, and I'm going to give it to you. That's actually love. And so for us as a Christian, we believe that there are two ways. One way ultimately leads to death, and the other way leads to life. And here's the gravitas within that. He says at the narrow gate, there's few on There's only a few. It seems like everybody says in our culture, well, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to get there, even within all the churches. We'd say that. And Jesus said, be careful, there's only a few in that sense. So that's the two ways. That's the two paths in life. Then he mentions two trees. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. He said, you're going to recognize them by their fruits. And so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. And he moves on here. Notice this about the two trees. They're both bearing fruit. It doesn't take a brilliant person to look at two trees, one with no fruit and one with fruit, and go, that's fruit tree. That's the healthy, that's the good tree. Jesus is saying both trees are bearing fruit, but one of the fruit is poisoned, is actually the word that he uses. It looks like the other fruit, but it's actually poisoned or diseased fruit. And so he said there's a difference within that. And for us, it brings us back to say, consider your fruit. Take an inventory of these things. And he says at the end of the day, the good trees, those are saved, but the bad trees are cut down and thrown away. Then he says there are two types of people. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, uh, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And declare, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Consider those two groups of people for a moment. Both groups of people are generally Orthodox Christians because the word that they use there uh, is the word that can be translated kyrios, which is ultimately the Greek translation of the word Yahweh. They knew their religion. They knew their theology. They were approaching Jesus properly. They were religious people. But they were also people who were emotionally connected to Jesus. And you find that in the use of the double words, Lord, Lord. You could go back into the Old Testament when David, King David, his son uh, had died, Absalom. How did he come and approach Absalom? Oh, Absalom, Absalom. It, it was emotional. And so he's saying these people who come, both groups of people, uh, they're religious in their theological framework. And, and they're emotionally connected. They get all fired up for Jesus. They're, they're there. And then it says both groups of people are actually doing moral and religious things. Didn't we do these things in your name? And we healed people. We visited people. We clothed naked people. We built habitats. We went on mission trips. We gave our money. We did all of these things. And Jesus is saying, oh, wait. You look the same on the outside, but there's something differentiating. I read by one uh, writer these words. The absence of these three traits demonstrates you're not a Christian. But the presence of these three traits does not demonstrate that you are. The absence of the three shows that you're not a Christian, but the presence of these three doesn't mean that you are a Christian. And, and so it's something that we have to consider and we have to think about. And then he moves on and he says, and there's two houses. And he says there's a house that's built upon a rock and there's a 
house was built upon the sand. Uh, and so you see, again, both people are building houses. Both people are building houses based upon something. And both people in their lives are experiencing difficulties. Both houses are, are experiencing storms. Some people go, oh, come to Jesus and you won't experience the difficulties of life. That's hogwash. But that's not true. That's a lie. Because Christians experience the exact same things as non-Christians experience. The winds blow, the storms come, all the things affect us, but there's something different. There's a reason why one house stays and one house doesn't stay. The one house is that stays, and the, the differentiating piece of both of these houses is the foundation. It's what are they built upon. That Jesus is saying, the house that's built upon me, my words, my kingdom, that's the house that's going to stand. And so hear this as we finish this first point. The two groups that Jesus is describing throughout all of the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular here in his summary on the Sermon on the Mount, he is not differentiating between good people and bad people. He's not differentiating between good people and bad people. Because all throughout the sermon he says, these people, all of them pray, all of them give alms, all of them do good things, all of them go to church, all of them read the scriptures, all of them are doing similar things. He is not saying that we are looking, he's not contrasting good and bad people. He's contrasting religious people and Christians. He's contrasting religious people and Christians. They're both, they're both very similar. They both pray. They both give uh, to the poor. They're both being kind to their neighbor. On the outside, they look like sheep, all of them. But on the inside, there is an utter difference for why they do what they do. And folks, I'm not here to tell you why you do what you do. I can't look in. The one place that no, no person should ever try to get into, and that is motive determination. I don't know what your motive is. I can just see what's outside. What we have to do, and what you have to do, what I have to do, even as I was preparing the sermon, by the way, it wasn't a really fun sermon to prepare. I crawled into bed last night before 9 o'clock and was like, I just got to get back into this because it, I, it's just so there. Matt came in, we're talking, and I showed him, and I was sitting there and I went to bed with this over, over in my head of going, in my own heart, what are my motives for what I'm doing? George Whitfield, the great. And evangelist said he used to love going to church and seeing pastors get converted. Folks, religious activity cannot be equated to spiritual life. And Jesus is saying you need to consider these things, and here's why that he says this, and we don't have time to give it the full treatment that it deserves. The reason why you need to consider these things so much is because at the end of the day, both paths lead to each other. There's going to be a reckoning of in whatever path you're on, you're going to have to give account for your path. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, uh, Lord, Lord, uh, is going uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven, basically. And so what he says there in verse 21 and 22 in, in that section are several things. The first is there's going to be a judgment. Whenever Jesus says, on that day, you have to ask the question, what day? Well, that day, he's talking about the judgment day. 
when he comes back and he judges all of the world. That there is going to be a day, there's going to be a reckoning, and that's not hellfire and brimstone, it's just the reality of things. That we're all going to have to give account uh, for what we've done. One day we will all stand and give account of our lives, both the believer and the non-believer. And then that we learn in this, that, that there's not only a judgment, but there's a judge. Listen to Jesus, he sort of sneaks it in. He says, not all who say to, not my father, not to, says all who say to me. Jesus is saying, I'm the judge. I'm the judge. I'm the king of the kingdom. And, and I'm the one who is the, knows the kingdom best, who knows the citizens best, who knows the requirements of the kingdom best. I'm the one, and I'm the one uh, who is going to make the judgment. I'm the ultimate judge. If Jesus is going to be the judge, it is of absolute importance for all of us to begin to consider him seriously now. So we said there's a judgment, there is a judge, and at the end of the day, there's going to be a sentencing. And the sentencing is going to be based on your path. For the non-Christian, or for the religious person who doesn't have Christ, the non-Christian, he says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. On the last day, Jesus is saying, I never knew you. He's not saying, I never do about you. It's not like you walked up and he was surprised by you. Oh, I got you. Didn't know you existed. He's saying, I've known you, who you are, but I've never had a relationship. The word is the word of deep relationship. It's the word used in the scriptures of the intimacy between a husband and his wife. That it is that deep knowing relationally. And Jesus is saying, I haven't had a relationship with Husbands and wives, friends, family, if your relationship is only transactional, is it really much of a relationship? That you're just doing things? But to know one another, that's what Jesus is saying in the midst of this, is that we are to be known by him and to know him. And in that judgment, he says to the non-Christian, I haven't known you. And now the judgment is that you have to depart that you lose the one thing that is most important in all of the world. You lose me. It's the thing that you were actually looking for in every instance. It's the thing that you were most desiring and looking at the moonrise and the sun coming up. It is the thing that you have been gazing into the beautiful pictures and art and listening for in the music. It's the thing that you most wanted, but you rejected me, who was the fulfillment of that, and now you have to leave, and you have no hope of me ever again. You lose everything. He doesn't say, don't fire brimstone on you. He says, depart on C.S. Lewis said that hell is the greatest monument to man's independence that God ever created. Man said to God, I want a place that I don't have to deal with you. God said, okay, I'll make that place for you. I won't be there. Now, for the Christian, the good news is this, Matthew 25, 33, 34, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. The sheep came through the narrow gate, the goats in the wide. And then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, enter the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The reward of following Christ by the narrow path is that you receive the kingdom. You receive all of the blessings of the kingdom. You receive the very thing that you wanted all along. He says that you are most blessed. 
that it is a biblical blessedness is more than human happiness. It is the supreme dimension of happiness. And how many of us, if I asked you, said, would you want to receive today the supreme measure of human happiness? How many of you would say yes? You'd be the rest of your life. Well, come on, we got Well, I hope that's a really good table. Because Jesus is saying, here's ultimate happiness. It's only through me. And the beauty of that is it's The beauty of that is he is giving it to us. It is the promise of ultimate satisfaction that comes to us in our glorification when one day we stand before him. Listen to 1 John 3, 2. John, who would have heard this sermon. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. God is giving to us this offer that is saying, would you come to me? Would you come to me on my terms, not on your terms? St. Augustine said this, God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless. The invitation to us today is rest. But that rest is only in Christ. Folks, I hope that you're a bit shocked and astonished by that. But I hope that you also feel incredibly encouraged that the Lord of the universe loves us so much that there's a degree of confusion in this that we can't stand one day and go, oh, I misunderstood the thing that's incredibly clear that it's in Christ.